This podcast is brought to you by Cyber Attacks Can Be Prevented. Checkpoint, you deserve the best security. Benjamin Netanyahu breaks his silence after the elections. Donald Trump breaks bread with a Holocaust denier. And wait till the end of the program to find out you don't have to be fun at work. This is Unholy. I'm Yunit Levy of Channel 12 in Tel Aviv. And I'm Jonathan Friedland of The Guardian in London. Unholy, two Jews on the news, and I seem to remember you being a little bit braggy about a year ago. Sounds just like me. When your home city reached the pinnacle of, well, well, is it an honour? I mean, on the league table of the world's most expensive cities, Tel Aviv was number one. On one level, obviously awful, makes it impossible for people to live. We've talked about that a lot on the podcast. But I think I detected a scintilla of pride but now the hey, it's new good list to be first is place out. in something, you know. That's all I'm <laughs> exactly. saying. Exactly. But the new list is out, and neither your home city nor my home city is number one we on the league table. We have been dethroned, my friend. We are in number three, Tel Aviv, and uh, yeah. I don't know how to deal with this. I mean, and, and the, the amazing thing is, it's not that Tel Aviv has become cheaper. It's just that other cities have become more expensive. So first right. place is now shared in tandem by uh, Singapore and New York. And by the way, just to make this a point, London has dived from the 17th spot last year to 27th. Yeah, which I have to say is baffling given that Britain has such high inflation, the highest, uh, I mean, everyone's having surging inflation, but on lots of measures, uh, depending on who you're comparing with, but Britain among the highest. And so I really thought we, you know, we might climb a couple of places instead plunging, as you say, to 27. So it's one of these things, it's sort of mixed feelings. Something tells me New Yorkers will quite like being a number one top of the heap to quote New York, New York, Frank Sinatra's standard for the city. I think they'll kind of weirdly like it. They'll It'll be the sort of thing I think I can imagine people will say, oh, isn't it awful? But, you know, in a kind of humble brag way, because it's somehow if you're, make, if you're there and you're making it, then it shows there's something sort of alpha about being the most expensive city. I think Tel Aviv's felt that a little bit last year. Mm-hmm. There's something sort of exclusive about it, but also it's... Um, it's pretty rough to live there because it just means people cannot get a home to live in and it's just really unmanageable. I'm going to use my lower octave voice here. Jonathan, do you need any money? (laughs) (laughs) You're you're here to help. um, It's just, it's counterintuitive. This is what I love about our podcast. You'd think diaspora Jew has to help out Israeli Jew because we're sitting here with camels in the Levant. But no, no, it's expensive camels. And maybe you need some help because you're in dire straits. Well, so you joke, but this is, I was actually going to bring this up because I was on a call, a conversation, uh, sort of addressing a group of European community officials, professionals who work for the Jewish communities of, you know, Brussels, Zurich, Paris, uh, Athens, Budapest, really interesting conversation about many, many things. But what uh, emerged was that rates of giving, charitable giving to Israel have Mm -hmm. fallen across the board among European Jewish communities. And what they said, these people are really, uh, you know, at the coal face who really know about this stuff, is they said their members, they're the people who are donors in their community, no longer want to give to Israel causes because they figure 
Look, first of all, Israel is secure now in a way that for their parents and grandparents, it just wasn't. Mm -hmm. It felt always as if Israel was hanging by a thread. But the bit that was really interesting and germane to this list of the world's most expensive cities is that they felt Israel economically is doing better than it was and doing better than them. And so they're thinking, if you're living and struggling with big inflation in London or Paris or Zurich or wherever, there are people in your neighbourhood who need your help more, and maybe even people in your community or maybe even yourself, who need help more than people in Israel with its really high GDP, startup nation, high tech, world's most ex third most expensive city, and so on. And so that dynamic between diaspora and Israel has and is flipping. Interesting. Do you want to? Do we doesn't, want to? Doesn't mean you're going to start giving to the London Jewish community. I know we're some we're some time away from that. And the only but, thing but, I was thinking of, I hope you talk with all of these Jewish leaders and you plugged unholy. That was the only thing running through I my really, mind while you really, were discussing this this contribution issue. I really did. Okay, and it was it got a little embarrassing. Um, no, because I made an argument that look, there is this drift going on between Israel and the Jewish world, but there are ways. <laughs> to remedy that, and one of them I suggested, and I said this is an easy hit fix here, is you just need to listen to Unholy week in, week out. And, you know, I did, not many jumped off the Zoom call at that point, <laughs> so I think we're doing well. Um, so, yes, we our job, in a way, our mission is for, these, for the two to talk to each other. They often mm -hmm. don't. So, perennial question, um, what's new in your neck of the woods? We don't yet have, do we? A formal Not arrival yet. of the new the government, but we know what's going to take a few weeks uh, longer, some negotiations and some procedural issues. We are recording this, Jonathan, December 1st. That's a month since uh, the elections. And, you know, there's one question that's been bugging me this week. Um, and that is only one. what it only only one specific to this uh, segment of our conversation. You know, we had this uh, one of my favorite episodes that we did is called BB Inside and Out, where we kind of describe try to get into the head of the leader of the soon to be leader of Israel once more. It's episode 21. I just wanted to remind you. But the point of it is yeah, that if you wanted to go back and listen, uh, the, the Netanyahu logic in everything that is going on is something that I am sort of I'm, I'm interested in. Because to me, again, we, we, we read the headlines, we all know what's going on and, and what kind of government is going to be formed in Israel. And, and to me, if there's been one constant in the Netanyahu universe, it has been him being incredibly cautious with the use of force, right? I mean, he would never, he would do everything in his power to prevent an all-out war with Hamas, with Hezbollah. And what he's doing now in, uh, on one end, right, Ben Gvir, who is going to be head of public security, having jurisdiction over uh, policing forces in the West Bank. Uh, Smotrich, on the other hand, going to have some sort of jurisdiction authority over the civic authority, meaning dealing with settlements, which means to me that he's giving a lot of power into the hands of people whose decisions might create some sort of flare-up. How does that work hand-in-hand hand with the Netanyahu who wants to, you know, not to use force, not to, to, to sort of escalate into a full-out war? Also, when you ask yourself, what does Netanyahu actually want from this tenure of his at the age of 73? What is his legacy? And the answer to that would be, I think, twofold. One, 
stop Iran from becoming nuclear. Always that is the case with him. And the second is some sort of normalization with Saudi Arabia. How does that all cuddle up with him having this extreme right-wing government? So that is the question that has been bugging me. I do have some answers, I think, but that was the one thing I wanted just to on, Just on the, on the question, I think that is um, a question that others are asking too, that actually, you know, of course the result you know, a month ago as we speak was better than the alternative him he didn't want to lose and you know we've talked about how it was just a bit of disorganization and lack of unity on the anti-bb side that actually opened the door to him it wasn't that there was some huge landslide shift of votes to his camp so interesting to highlight that gap there is sometimes between the rhetoric and the action of netanyahu that you know he can talk the rhetoric is often very bellicose and yet the military record is such that I think he has been involved in starting fewer wars and fewer military offensive than offensives than other Israeli prime ministers. But on this point about um, how does he square that circle, he has given Ben Gvir that responsibility. I mean, what you know, what are your thoughts on how he actually manages simultaneously to, you know, play to his own instincts, which are often a bit more cautious, while he's got this sort of tiger pacing in a cage inside his coalition. Well, I think, I think, first of all, Netanyahu is is convinced that he still has full control. First of all, notice that he didn't give Smotrich himself the defense portfolio, which is what Smotrich wanted. He thinks that all of these sort of um, authorities or jurisdictions that he gave Ben Gvir and Smotrich will still be under his control. I think that might be a sore mistake because reality has its way of, of forming different uh, situations. And I think he did make the point, and this is uh, it's going a little bit into the weeds here, but he did keep some enclaves in his control. He didn't give Ben Gvir any authority over Temple Mount because he knows that is the hottest of points that can start up a war not only with Gaza but with the rest of the Arab world. Also, he when Smotrich wanted to legalize outposts, he said, let's start a committee, which is a code name in Hebrew for we're kicking the can down the road. So he's still keeping a little bit of this uh, under his control. But I think the main reason, uh, Jonathan, of what we're seeing now, and, and I didn't even mention, right, Avi Maoz, the, the head of the anti-gay party, becoming a deputy minister in the prime minister's office. And of course, Yariv Levine, we talked about it last time, being for the judicial system in Israel, parts of it, being a boogeyman and putting him at the head of the uh, justice system, being a minister of justice. I think what Netanyahu is trying to do is to send a message. He's trying to send a message across to the anti-BB camp. And he's saying to that camp, look, guys, for three years, you tried to get rid of me. You formed a government with Naftali Bennett and Meretz and Mansour Abbas, and you failed. Now, look at where, where you are right now. You're in opposition. I'm the prime minister. Not only if I return to the prime minister's seat, I have a coalition with the most extreme elements of Israeli society. So you look hard, good and hard at this situation. And you think whether or not at one point you want to break away from the anti-BB camp and join my coalition. This is some sort of a security blanket for him. Because if things go south with Smotrich and Bengvir, remember, they're very unruly. And if something happens that they leave the coalition, I think that Taniao is kind of signaling to the other side of the political map, guys, you should think again about in the future, maybe in two years, maybe in a year, joining my coalition. In the sense that he makes the coalition so repellent that they feel their duty Right. is to be a taming, right. moderating influence. Right. That Benny Gantz will see you know, himself as saving Israel from this coalition that right now, to the center and the center left in Israel, looks like a complete nightmare. It's an interesting idea that somehow you play on the consciences of people on the center left and say, your duty to be a moderating influence is right. to come into my government and save me from myself and save me from my partners. 
Right. I mean, right. At this point, still, there's no other option for him because, A, his base won't allow him to do anything but to take in Ben Gvir and Smotrich. And the other side doesn't even want to think about it or imagine it. But in two years, and I gave you this scenario already, right? There's a flare-up with Gaza. It only ends when Israel gives concessions. Smotrich or Ben Gvir say, we're not going to be part of a coalition that gives concessions to Hamas. They leave the coalition. Then what happens? So I think that is something to keep in mind in the way that Netanyahu is still maneuvering this chessboard to the best of his ability. Now, I just want to get on to the business of how all this plays outside Israel, because I think Ben Gvir is going to be the focus of all outside international angst. And by outside, I mean both diplomatically foreign governments, but also the diaspora. That was already the case just by having him in the government at all. Mm -hmm. To give him the job of policing is so incendiary, it seems to me, Mm -hmm. because in the age of Black Lives Matter and George Floyd and what happened in 2020, the number one flashpoint on race around the world, actually, is often policing. So to put this figure who will be branded, whether Israelis like it or not, as a racist around the world, in charge of policing, when policing is this meeting point between the Jewish majority and often the Arab minority, I mean, it is such an incendiary to me, it's, I did think, okay, he'll give Ben Gvir a job, but he'll give him something, you know, religious affairs or something where the damage or the impact will be felt inside. I mean, actually, that would have had a knock-on effect outside too because of reformed Jews in America and so on. But I thought he would give him a job that somehow was less harmful. Obviously, Ben Gvir no had more leverage than yep. that. I mean, that's the point. If Ben Gvir had been three or four seats, maybe he could have got away with that. But Ben Gvir had more leverage than right. that, as you say, no choice. Um, it, it, it's interesting to me that um, Bibi Netanyahu this week gave an interview uh, on a podcast, oddly not this one, but um, on Barry Weiss's podcast, Honestly. We're going to hear a bit from that in a second. I just thought it was really interesting that he did it at all. Uh, it suggests that this thing that uh, we were just talking about a moment ago about how the rest of the world views what's going on with this mm-hmm. government is on Netanyahu's mind too. He wanted to speak to Americans. He wants to speak, in a way, to American Jews. Barry Weiss is, it's not the same as just doing, you know, CBS or whatever. Um, That seems interesting too. Uh, It seems that now that he's won, he needs or is concerned to ensure that his government is not a pariah around the world. He knows that it could be because of Avi Ma'oz, you know, a homophobic uh, minister in his government, because of Ben Gvir, the footage of Ben Gvir, you know, kicking, carrying a gun, going into Arab neighbourhoods and rabble-rousing, the record he has, inciting in the period leading up to the Rabin assassination. All of that, he's aware, he knows that plays outside, and so he decides to go on, on Barry Weiss and offers a couple of messages I'm sure he thought were aimed to be reassuring. We can probably hear one of those. Israel is not going to be governed by Talmudic law. We're not going to ban LGBT forums. My view on that is sharply different, to put it mildly. And uh, we're, we're going to remain a country of laws. I, I govern through the principles that I believe in. Exactly what you said. The message is, of course, I'm in charge. 
And yeah. we are not going back to the Middle Ages. Israel is still a democratic country. And no, we're not going to do anything with the LGBTQ rights. I agree that I think it's incredibly interesting that what he's doing is talking to Barry Weiss. First of all, we should note, being the Israeli media representative in this conversation, Netanyahu has not spoken to the Israeli public since the elections. I think he thinks that that part is covered, right? He won. Not only wow. hasn't he spoken to the Israeli public, he has broken from his long uh, policy in talking to mainstream media in the weeks before the elections. He didn't do that either this time. And what he's doing is he's talking to an American audience of a, you know, a center position, not too right, not too left. And he's talking to the pro-Israel audience, obviously, as well, and the Jewish audience. And he's sending that message, assuaging the the fears or the anxieties they might have. I think it's extremely interesting that he's also talking to a podcast. And you mentioned that, right? I mean, it's not the mainstream media. Netanyahu is walking away from that. He could have talked to the Wall Street Journal or to Fox right. News or to, but he wanted a long form conversation. He wanted to be heard. And at 73, he is more modern thinking than many of his younger peers. And he's saying, this is the medium of the future. I want to go talk to the podcast. I have to admit, you know, I'm torn here because I'm the anchor of the evening news. Can't get more mainstream than that. Also doing this podcast. I don't know what is better, but that is a very interesting move by him. Really interesting. And, and you know, you mentioned there the other options he could have had. I mean, I was thinking just purely in terms of mainstream media when I mentioned, you know, CBS or a newspaper or whatever, that would have been conventional. But think about the politics too, because he could have gone on Fox News, one of those shows, they love him there. He That would have been a very natural fit. But if you are trying to reassure American Jews who are not really in the Fox News place, religious American Jews perhaps more are more, they're more right-wing, more Republican – 75% also are Democrats. They're not Fox News viewers. Barry Weiss was a perfect bit of positioning, an American Jewish figure who is, as you say, not really aligned massively one way or the other, fairly centrist. So very deliberate. I thought you're, I, I'm interested, you'll tell me if I over, I mean, if I, I'm over interpreting because Lord knows we're capable of doing <laughs> that on this show. He says we're not going to be ruled, uh, we will not have some return to Talmudic law, right? I thought Talmudic, I'm going to be Talmudic for a yes. second. It's an interesting choice of word mm -hmm. because I've gone around some of those settlements and seen the graffiti in Hebron, etc. The demand that is sprayed on walls is not for Talmudic, Talmudic law, it's for Torah law, yeah, as halachic. they would put it, yeah. right? Halachic law, but Torah rather than mm -hmm. Talmud, yep. right? And therefore, Talmud is quite, it's an easy thing for him to say because I think he thinks Americans will hear that and say, oh, good, he's not going to be some theocrat. But he does it without angering the sort of Ben Gvir Smotrich right, because actually that's not their demand that they have a state of rabbinic Talmudic law, but rather Torah law, Torah law, as they might phrase it. Am I overinterpreting this I, choice I mean, of words? Actually, I hadn't thought of that point. And I don't know, because this is so clearly for an American audience, it's so clear that they, you know, that Smotrich and Ben Gvira, I don't think would be listening in. And if if they would, I'm not sure they would care what one way or, the, or another the way he phrases it. But I think it's it's interesting that that, I mean, Netanyahu is definitely a man of words and he knows the difference. So I think now it that just seemed to me out, it's an interesting uh, it's an Yeah, interesting it seemed point. to me a way that you reassure America without angering that bit and of that Israel. that is a tight... You, you know, act to, to, to just, follow. Just it's very and, difficult. And it may even have been instinctive, but he knew that would be a word that would reassure liberals in America and without necessarily provoking, you know, poking the bear inside his own coalition. So I thought that was um, that was significant. 
And if we are on the topic of Ben Gvir and Smotrich, actually not leaving that topic for the last couple of minutes, we should mention an incident in Hebron on Friday. An Israeli soldier was taunting uh, an activist, saying to him, Ben Gvir will sort this out. Yet another soldier physically attacking one of the activists. Now, the battalion commander deciding on 10 days jail time for the soldier who supported uh, Ben Gvir, the soldier that uh, was behind the physical assault. That punishment is still pending. Now, this is what happened after. And this is interesting because we've been asking ourselves what is going to happen with Ben Gvir now that he's soon to be in office, in a ministerial position? Will he become a pragmatist and lower the flames or will he talk the way he's always uh, talked? So this is what happened. He heavily criticized the decision to jail the soldier. He said it was crossing a red line. That automatically led to online harassment, bullying, even threats against the Givati battalion commander who decided on jail time for the soldier. And then Ben Gvir had to walk this back uh, because he saw the effect of his words and he started saying, no, 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 it's not the fault of the Givati uh, battalion commander. The whole situation is the fault of, of Benny Gantz, the defense minister. So the situation really, I mean, besides the fact that this is a whole other topic, that, that Israeli soldiers find themselves generally in a situation where they have to be some sort of a police force. But besides that, what we see here is the, the realization that Ben Gvir has, maybe others in the soon-to-be government have, that now there's a big difference uh, between being in this position and flaring up the rhetoric or rather having to walk back uh, your words. I mean, this goes to the issue that you talked about before the election, that it's one thing to be the rebel on the outside firing up the crowd. Very different when you've got the ministerial briefcase in your hand, that your words have a different consequence. I just want to go back to the incident itself, because these pictures, I think, did, to, you know, they, they, I was going to say they went around the world. No, they went for people who follow Israel, they were on social media feeds, etc. Mm -hmm. But they were definitely rose to the top in a way that other incidents don't. And I won and the footage was appalling. I mean, the man is not posing no physical threat. That he uses the soldier uses a kind of judo move to get him down onto the ground and then just punches him directly in the face. They're very shocking. And and yet a voice in me did wonder to myself, do you know, are we all finding this more shocking because it's a Jew who is the victim rather than a Palestinian Arab? You know, in other words, are there not incidents like this probably much more often and yet somehow it's that notion of a jewish soldier hitting a jewish activist two young men of similar sort of age that you know was that why it was so sort of unsettling to see it i don't know the point you're making about bengvin and the ability he has to as it were reprimand or even direct the IDF on the ground. This one piece of the Ben Gvir biography, I'm not clear on. So this is a question to you: mm -hmm. Is does he what sort of military background does he have? No, I mean because none. of ah because right, this because is important. The Shin Bet thought Israel, it was two days because he was obviously part of the incitement before uh, Rabin's assassination. The Shin Bet uh, Israeli intelligence decided that he is too much; it's too dangerous, dangerous. to put him mm -hmm. into. So they refused uh, his uh, military service. He never went to the military. Again, you'll tell me, but I think that surely will have a bearing on his standing, his sort of locus when talking about military matters and security matters. You know, people who are not from Israel will know that in any conversation, mm -hmm. if you start offering an opinion, people will quickly tell you, well, what military service did you do? You know, meaning you didn't do any, you don't know about this. And we know that the other politicians have had that problem without having a big military record, you know, going back to Shimon Peres or whatever. If you hadn't worn the uniform and been in, com been in an elite unit or in combat, then your credibility is less. Mm -hmm. It's an odd thing that here's this super hawk, again, mm -hmm. that's putting him far too kindly, 
to my mind, a thuggish racist, but who hasn't actually done the basics that every Israeli man or woman has done in a conscription army. Does that limit his ability to talk tough Mm -hmm. and to boss around battalion commanders on the ground? He, this has been priced in, into the Benkville phenomenon already. It's known uh, that he doesn't have military service at all. Bezalel Smoltich, who wanted to be defense minister, uh, has very little military uh, service. By the way, I think a defense minister can be a civilian, just to, ma- to make that clear. So the followers of, of uh, Benkville like his rhetoric, like his tough guy talk, and they don't care anymore if he does not have military experience. That's the short it's answer like to Trump. the question. It's like Trump with the bone spurs. You know, he dodged the Vietnam draft with bone spurs. Nevertheless, you go to a Trump rally, they're all wearing T-shirts with him dressed up as if he's Rambo. They, it's a disconnect, but absolutely, they've priced it in. Well, we are on the issue of Trump. Uh, it is your habit, Jonathan, to elegantly just segue to our next topic. Well, gosh, I know. I mean, we you, we don't we can't leave him, even though he's the ex president and you know a wounded figure by the those very poor midterm results. He is in the news again, and this time for uh, his choice of dinner guest at Mar-a-Lago in Florida. Around his table was not only Kanye West, the performer who has developed a really alarming sideline in anti-Semitic rhetoric. But with him was Nick Fuentes, this uh, 20-something broadcaster who broadcasts on a a program that he calls America First, which also has some very dark historical resonances, um, and is an overt white nationalist and Holocaust denier. And the two of them broke bread with Donald Trump in Mar-a-Lago. I mean, Fuentes, I've been very reluctant. I think I even, we sort of talked about this offline, as it were, I was thinking, do I tweet this bit of footage of Nick Fuentes on TV denying the Holocaust? It's so chilling to me. In the end, I decided not to because I just didn't want to amplify it. It is so sinister. It's Fuentes talking about whether it was possible to bake six million cookies in a certain number of ovens over a certain period of time. And he's got this cheesy grin on his face all the while as he's talking about well, you could bake 200,000 cookies in these ovens. You know, it's just sickening. Mm-hmm. And it's it's a sort of, he's he's almost flirting with the camera saying, see, I'm denying the Holocaust without actually denying the Holocaust, you know. But you know, you know what he's doing. So he is the lowest of the low uh, in terms of white supremacist Holocaust denying racists. And yet there he is at the table of a former president. To me, this is, you know, we'll talk about lots of the sort of politics of it, but I think it is a significant moment in the mainstreaming of anti-Semitism in American life. And you have to go back very far, I think, really to the pre-war period to find as significant an embrace as this. And I think this is more because he is a former president, former holder of the highest office in the country, making legitimate this level of hate. I don't think you can find a precedent for that. And it goes along with what I think Kanye West is is up to here, which is Kanye West also announced himself as a presidential candidate. Easy to dismiss as a joke, given the you know, he's an entertainer, he's a rapper, he's got clearly documented mental health issues, and you could think, okay, we don't have to take this seriously. But he's running for president with a lot of fame, 30-odd million followers online, social media, who clearly means to make the organizing principle of his movement anti-Semitism. 
That's not the side. That's not a bug. It's a feature. It's central to what he's doing. And he's been on platforms with other right-wing figures and then been annoyed with them and denounced them for not coming on board with the anti-Semitism. There's footage of him walking out of the show because the guy wouldn't say the Jews are to blame. He kept on talking about them. Mm -hmm. And so this is a, a, a real sort of step change, it seems to me, in what's happened in the United States. You've got a former president making it acceptable and you've got a you know big-name celebrity going all in on Jew hatred. We'll talk about the big business of the dinner itself and who's condemned and who hasn't, but that itself seems to me to be very significant. Yes, and I, I, I agree. And I, I think what I find dispiriting beyond what you said is that we keep finding ourselves talking about uh, anti-Semitism and how to combat it. Like we are, this is a Jewish podcast. We're Jewish. We like to talk about Jewish values and Jewish issues. And what's the difference between you being a Jew in London and me being a Jew in Tel Aviv? And instead, we find ourselves again and again returning to this topic as if this is what Jewish life is, right? Combating anti-Semitism. It isn't. And of course, obviously, uh, the war against anti-Semitism should be part of a global community, not only a Jewish community, but it, it does, you know, find me in a dispirited mood in which we keep returning to this topic. It's, of course, an incredibly important one, but it can't be the only thing that j the Jewish life means is to discuss this or to combat that. That's just a you know a small point to make, but I just wanted to, to say that. And, and, and one I completely agree with. I mean, I'm so on board with that that I, you know, have had my big differences with a lot, you know, Jewish newspapers and things in this country for going so repeatedly and constantly on anti-Semitism and not talking about Jewish life. And I've, you know, I remember judging a Jewish book prize and saying to fellow judges, you know, let's try to make this about Jewish life rather than about Jewish death and all that. You know, I'm really with you on that. Right. And yet it just keeps coming back. And it's actually a change even in the limited number of years I've been a journalist. I won't say how many. Um, it's changed. I mean, I think it was very possible to not make it central 25 years ago. And suddenly in the last few years, it just keeps on coming back. Here it is now. In central, central in American politics, because Trump is not just the former president, he wants to be the next president. And so, the, of course, it becomes fascinating to see who is with him on this and who isn't. And that has been alarming, too, to be honest, because, yes, there's been some condemnation. Uh, others have just said no evidence at all that Donald Trump is uh, in any way problematic, but these two people are not good, but refusing to condemn Trump for legitimating them. And even, we're going to hear now, condemnation or criticism from Israel's incoming uh, prime minister. But I think this, too, is in a way quite careful. I mean, let's hear it anyway. Well, first, I, I condemned uh, Kanye West's um, anti-Semitic statements uh, straight away. I, I thought that was just wrong and misplaced. And I think that uh, President Trump's decision to dine with this person, I think it's wrong and misplaced. I think it's a mistake. He shouldn't do that. He has been a tremendous supporter of Israel. Also, you know, he's been very supportive of the Jewish people. So I think he made a mistake. I hope uh, I hope it's not repeated. That's all I can tell you. Mistake. I think uh, that this shows that Netanyahu is a very smart uh, political operative, if not the smartest in the world, uh, thinks uh, Trump is done. Like, I think the fact, I actually don't, I mean, it's careful wording here, 
But the fact that he would say it so clearly is, to me, an indication of something. Um, and, and obviously Netanyahu is not the only one. It, it, it kind of echoes what we've heard from a lot of Republicans who've been Trump supporters, people like David Friedman, who was ambassador to Israel, Jason Greenblatt, who held the uh, Middle East portfolio in the White House, all saying this was a mistake. He shouldn't have done it. And I think that is important. Look, I've had conversations uh, with, uh, especially with Jason Greenblatt over the years. I feel comfortable to say this because a lot of them were on camera uh, about Trump and the question of anti-Semitism, he he kept saying to me, Trump has been very respectful of my Judaism. Obviously, his daughter and his son-in-law are Jews. He is not in any way an anti-Semite. And I would push back on that and say, but look at the you know how the people who support him. He said that's not it's his responsibility who supports him. But I will say that again, this whole question, is Trump himself an anti-Semite, is not important anymore. If you're the person who opens the door, not figuratively, literally, to these people. And by the way, even if he says he didn't know who Fuentes is, he knew who Kanye West is and he knew what Kanye West was saying about Jews. If you open the door to him, at the very least, just apologize about this. I think it is, you know, you you had dinner with a person, Fuentes is a man that to call him vile is a compliment. You now know who he is, even if you didn't before, just apologize. Yep. Um, so I think the wording was insufficient to me, right. um, because mistake, you know, putting an apostrophe in the wrong place is a mistake. This is much worse than a mistake. It's morally indefensible. It's, you know, it deserves to be condemned rather than an error, you know, a mistake to me is the, is the weakest word on the spectrum. But he did say it was wrong. And he did say it. And I think your read is much more realistic than mine. That's a, it's really insightful thing, I think, to realize that Netanyahu is doing this because he can see that Trump is a diminishing stock. And, and what do you make um, of the fact they call them irreverent, which also is something that, you know, it's an interesting word to choose when you're asked. Yeah, to it describe. is, but it's not, yeah, it's not drawing from the palette of condemnation, you know, yeah. in the, the, the lexicon of lamentation <laughs> that you could draw on. That is not quite there. Well, if you don't like um, someone irreverent, it could be a disparaging comment, but I'm not be, sure you meant it. It could be, it. but you could also say, a, you, know, a, 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 you know, a great satirist is irreverent humor yeah, or something. Sure. And, but... It does seem to me, I think you're right, and how telling, really. I mean, that what does it for Netanyahu, what enables him to condemn Donald Trump isn't Donald Trump's slide into fascism, it's rather Donald Trump becoming a loser. Uh, that much worse for Donald Trump in the eyes of Netanyahu, but also, frankly, Rupert Murdoch and all the others, they can take the fascism. What they can't take is the guy being a loser. Then they don't want to have anything to do with him, you know. It's that was the, the crossing of the line. Similarly, in terms of, you know, the uh, pantheon of insufficient condemnation, but, but still significant that he did it. David Friedman, uh, Donald Trump's ambassador to Israel, total Trump loyalist. He says, to my friend Donald Trump, you are better than this. Again, I think that's so interesting. Maybe I'm in a mood where I'm really passing the text here today. But, you know, what a thing to do. It's a Talmudic mood here on and I'm in a Talmudic mood, it's true. Um, I thought that's amazing because how to condemn someone but still dress it up like a compliment. Um, To my friend Donald Trump, you are better than this. It's it's two nice things there uh, in, in one sentence. And maybe this is because they're so used to dealing with Trump and his ridiculous ego. This is how they frame it. But no, I agree. I think it is a sign that uh, Netanyahu, like Rupert Murdoch, these are reliable weather vanes. They tell you where the political winds are blowing. For Murdoch, he always wants to back a winner. For for Netanyahu, actually the same, but also that sense that he doesn't have to uh, pull his punches because, or wholly pull his punches because um, 
the guy is on the downward slide. But I do think other people have made this point. It's really worth keeping an eye on Ron DeSantis and his lack of condemnation. And there was a good piece um, published in New York magazine by Jonathan Chait arguing that actually Republicans have I'm quoting now, the issue is that Trump has expanded the Republican coalition to the right, activating and encompassing undisguised white supremacists who, through their entry into the two-party system, have gained newfound influence. He argues that this isn't just about Donald Trump. This is a shift that's happened in Republican Party politics, that the those people are part of the scene now. And he interprets DeSantis's reluctance to condemn that DeSantis, like Trump, is keeping a sort of winking eye on those people on the far right. He's never going to praise them, but nor is he going to condemn them because he wants their votes. And that is a, you know, and yet another chilling development um, in, a, in a week of them. But um, yeah, I think this is more, more, you know, don't don't listen to those who might want to dismiss this as sort of side a side issue. I think it's a significant moment. Uh, and a significant unfortunate moment in American Jewish history. So we have awards to uh, distribute, uh, Yonit, and the the bid for Chutzpah Award came in early and managed to just see off all comers. Uh, often there's an th- early thought at the beginning of the week, but then is overtaken by appalling and outrageous behaviour <laughs> from others as the week goes on. But Chutzpah Award goes to Israel's former Prime Minister, Naftali Bennett. Good for him for winning this award because he wrote an op-ed piece in the New York Times all about his government and making a wonderful case for it, uh, how meaningful it was and the significance of it in the grand sweep of Israel's uh, 75-year nearly long narrative. But there was just a rather glaring omission in this article about his government. And that was, if you did a word search, you would not find the name of Yair Lapid, Naftali Bennett's partner. And still the Prime Minister of Israel. And still the (laughs) Prime Minister of Israel. In forming that coalition, you'd think he might get a little nod if you're talking about the significance of that government, the guy who was literally the current head of it, the outgoing head of it, but also the architect of it, the man who in effect made you Prime Minister, Naftali Bennett. So um, I think that is chutzpah in um, quite a traditional sense, and I hand it to Naftali Bennett. With just because just it's fun to give the counter-arguments to your arguments, I would just say that uh, it's not that Lapid mentions Bennett, right? I'm just saying that we, we discussed this. It's not exactly brotherly love between those two, and I think Lapid definitely could have done a lot more to try and keep Naftali Bennett inside the coalition. So uh, it, it's indicative from both ends on, you know, how this relationship now looks and the kind of bad blood that is uh, between them. And, and you know, thus endeth the attempt to have a right-left coalition in Israel. Uh, I don't know when we'll soon see that attempt again. But now we shall discuss our Mensch Awards. Yes, please. Go okay. on. Who, who's okay. on the, who's, who's so on the podium? I would, I, it's an interesting story. I, I, I will sort of maybe try and say that I'm not sure it's a mensch or a chutzpah, but let's let's go with mensch, okay? Uh, because uh, we are talking about a story of a man named uh, Mr. T. He wasn't named in the article, uh, who was fired from a uh, consulting firm ne- named uh, Cubic Partners uh, because of his professional incompetence. The professional incompetence in question is the fact that he uh, was not fun at work, to be quite honest. He didn't want to be 
uh, part of the parties at work or any sort of social activity. He said that all of these social activities uh, had uh, involved excessive alcoholism and promiscuity and just didn't want to go. So that he was fired. A French court, and maybe the French court in the story is the actual bench, said that this was wrongful termination and you don't have to be fun at work. So um, I have a lot to say about this, but I know a lot of my coworkers are listening into the podcast, so I will just be quiet. I am not, I know this will come as a surprise to you, a party girl. I would rather just sit at home and read books about parties, but I'm for the French court that says that you don't have to be fun at work. I am so with the French court here and <laughs> um, and the French guy. I think it's something about the, this phrase about fun time in quotes, you know, now it's fun time, organized fun Nothing makes the heart sink more than those <laughs> moments where, you know, your work colleagues say, now we're all going to have fun together. You know, it doesn't mean you can't be fun at work, by the way. My defence of the French guy is, I bet he's great at work. He's fun to talk to. He's charming. He's very friendly. Oh, I'm not sure I'm... about that. It's okay. okay. This is the picture whatever. I want to believe in. But, you know, suddenly putting everyone putting on the paper hats and, um, you know, or playing organised games. The, the, the cringe is real in this one. <laughs> And I can completely see why. Some may want to call him um, misanthropic, but I completely see where he's coming from. It's a little bit like, and maybe we're going to be talking about this as that day looms, but, you know, I think we've talked about my feelings towards Jan December the 31st as well. Mm -hmm. I think we'll talk about it again of, soon, I assume. It, it, we will. But, you know, it's that notion of, you know, I'm looking at my watch, now we must all be spontaneous and have fun. Um, whereas I think our French guy probably breaks out into spontaneous jollity at all kinds of times during the working week. He just doesn't want to be told it's in this hour now where you have the rictus grin and you are forced to be jolly. I sympathise with him. So I think we've done well with our mensch and chutzpah for this week. More award winners, of course, uh, next week. In the meantime, do follow us on Facebook and Instagram where we are Unholy Podcast. Um, and Don't do go crazy on Instagram, Jonathan. Too many pictures of you. Just curb your social media <laughs> intake. I wanted to. We should I need that. to dial it down a little bit, just a bit. <laughs> um, but also, I was going to say reviews. We love those because they are great. And you've been doing some very warm and enthusiastic ones. So thank you. We love those. And who should we thank? We're thanking Gaia Glazer, Rom Atik, uh, Omer Primat, and Yair Bashan. You are a lot of fun at work, Jonathan. We shall meet next week. <laughs> Thanks. Party hat <laughs> taken off. I've, I've had it on for 47 minutes. <laughs> At last, I can See you next week. See ya. This podcast is brought to you by Cyber Attacks Can Be Prevented. Checkpoint. You deserve the best security.